The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining. Mike, I never thought I'd be saying this, but today we're joined by Peter Mansbridge. How do you feel? <laughs> it's uh, it's a little surreal that, uh, yeah, I, I never thought, you know, when we started this podcast in in June of, uh, of 2021 that, yeah, you and I would be sitting here one day saying, yeah, that was a great chat we just had with Peter Mansbridge, but here we are. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we're here to talk about, uh, obviously, Peter's life and his new book, Off Off the Record. Um, I think we're not going to belabor this any longer. I think we should just get our listeners uh, into the interview. So without any further ado, uh, we give you Peter Mansbridge. So we're now pleased to be joined by a man who needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Uh, Peter Mansbridge, uh, former chief correspondent for the CBC and the anchor of CBC's flagship show, The National, where he reported on stories from around the world. Uh, Peter also has a new book, Off the Record, where he shares never-before-told stories from his distinguished career, including reporting on the fall of the Berlin Wall, the horrors of 9-11, walking the beaches of Normandy with Tom Brokaw, and talking with Canadian Prime Ministers from John Diefenbaker to Justin Trudeau. Today, he is the host of the aptly titled podcast, The Bridge with Peter Mansbridge, and now a guest on The Unlikely Innovators. So Peter Mansbridge, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike, Steve, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. So one of the reasons why I reached out to you is because I was reading your book uh, over the holidays, and we'll get to the book uh, in a little bit. But one of the things that jumped out at me uh, in trying to think about our own podcast is like the unlikely career paths that a lot of our guests have had. You know, and in reading your book off the record, you know, perhaps there's nothing as quite unlikely as going from a baggage handler to eventually the chief correspondent for the CBC. So maybe can we start with that and maybe share some insights on that? It was a pretty unlikely start. Uh, and, uh, you know, I have to pinch myself every once in a while when I think of how lucky I was. And I also uh, get used to looking at the faces of young journalism students who, when they hear the story, go, that's just not fair, you know. Like, <laughs> considering what what they're going through. Um, listen, I you know I, I didn't finish high school. I went to high school in Ottawa. I didn't finish high school. I'm not proud of that fact, uh, but uh, it was a fact. <laughs> so off I went. I joined the Navy for a little while. That didn't work out too well. Uh, I ended up in northern Manitoba, uh, working for a small airline called Transair. And, and it was during that time where, where I was literally doing everything from baggage handling to loading freight to checking in passengers, uh, the whole gamut of uh, different things that happened at a small airline. Uh, and one day somebody asked me to announce the flight over the PA system, which I did. And the next thing I knew, there was a guy in the terminal building who came up to me and said, hey, you've got a good voice. I'm the manager of the local radio station here, a CBC Northern Service Station. And, uh, you know, I've got, I've got a, an opening late at night. I can't get anybody to do it. I've tried everybody. Would you be interested? And that's how it started. You know, I started the next night after like a 10-minute training course on how to run the, the, the knobs, the control knobs, which is kind of like doing a podcast today mm -hmm. or you do everything. And that's what I did in, in those days. So that's how it started. That was 1968, which sounds like, totally unfair for those who want to get into this business, but it was a different era. I mean, if that same job was open today, there'd be 200 journalism grads applying for it. Back then, there was literally nobody who wanted the job. And uh, so I got it and I, I worked my tail off um, because I had no training, no background, nothing in terms of news. 
And so I, uh, I basically taught myself. There was no newscast in Churchill. I suggested starting one because I was always interested in things that were going on around me. And, uh, and then one thing led to another. Uh, that's so unlikely, uh, Peter. <laughs> and and I, I just have to tell you, um, when I was about 19, I worked at the Sudbury Airport for a few summers as a summer student. And oh, yeah. um, it's uh, sometimes a frantic place when you're running here to there. Um, and it's hard to find people sometimes and you have radios and, and things like that. What if you hadn't been available that day at the airport to make that announcement? Have you ever thought about where your career and life might have taken you if you weren't available? Because there were tons of times where people couldn't find me, you know, at the airport. What, what do you think about that? I'd probably still be at the Churchill Airport, uh, you know, moving bags or trying to convince people uh, my age that I could still move bags. Listen, you know, luck plays a role in a lot of people's lives. Um, I'd had opportunities up to that point. I'd had opportunities with great teachers, great opportunities at high school, which I had not uh, dealt with properly and, and didn't take advantage of. Then I had opportunities in the Navy. I was in pilot training. I would have flown off. At that point, we had an aircraft carrier, the Canadian Navy, the Bonaventure off, off the East Coast. Um, you know, if I pursued that properly, that's where I would have ended up. Uh, but um, so I, you know, these one kind of not necessarily a failure, but a lost opportunity after one after another for a young guy. I mean, I was 19, 20 years old when that happened in the Churchill Airport. And I recognized as soon as I walked into that studio, hey, I love doing this. Um, but I also recognized this was a, an opportunity and this one I wasn't going to blow. I was going to work hard at it. And I worked really hard at it. Um, because I was behind the eight ball in terms of experience. And, uh, you know, I had to make a name for myself. And then I moved from, you know, Churchill to Winnipeg, Winnipeg to Regina to start working for the National as a correspondent, um, then to Ottawa as a parliamentary correspondent, a little bit overseas. And then they asked me to start doing some, uh, you know, weekend anchoring. And then that led to, you know, the top job, um, 20 years after that day in the airport in, uh, in Churchill. Wow. Um, it's so interesting. We had Terry O'Reilly um, on a couple of weeks ago and he was talking about how these, you know, little instances, you know, in a, in a person's life or a, like in a, in the life of a product, because he often talks about advertising can lead to these, these, you know, sort of monumental changes in that person's life. And, mm -hmm. and I think, you know, in his follow-up book, I think Peter Mansbridge might need a little chapter in that because I think it really fits with that trope. Yeah, you know, listen, um, as I say, luck plays a part, but so does hard work. Uh, nothing uh, is uh, uh, replaceable uh, for that quality of, of a person as well. You, you've got to, you know, you've got to believe in yourself. You've got to believe that uh, what you can do is uh, anything's possible. And I, and I believe that. I mean, as soon as I realized that broadcasting was what I wanted to do and journalism was what I wanted to do, I, you know, in my head, wrote out a career path. Um, and, you know, eventually I got to where that path uh, in my head was, but it, it took a long time. And I didn't make every step of the way and, uh, under the timetable that I wanted. Um, so you have setbacks, but you deal with them. Mm -hmm. uh, you believe in yourself and, and you and take the opportunities that are presented to you and you learn from others. Uh, and, and those are 
you know, sort of basic qualities in any profession and not just journalism. Yeah. I want to shift gears a little bit because Mike and I actually had the opportunity to see you um, from afar, of course, at an event. Uh, we saw you at the Colleges Ontario Higher Education Summit in 2019 when you were interviewing Edward Snowden. And oh, yeah. uh, it was it was a fantastic chat the two of you had uh, virtually, of course, uh, before virtual was sort of mandated by other things. Um, but you still felt very personable and connected to, to Snowden while you were interviewing with him. A few months after this, of course, virtual conversations like the one we're having over Zoom became the norm. Could you talk about adjusting to that sort of virtual conversation method in the pandemic world? And how do you still maintain that connection with the people you interview? That's a good question. Uh, I mean, listen, when I when I started up in Churchill, a lot of the guests I had, you know, were at the other end of a long distance phone call. So in a way, that was virtual, too. I mean, mm -hmm. it was radio at that point before I moved into television. Um, and, you know, a lot of work, even through, you know, the good times and the old national and journal, a lot of that was done virtually. Um, you weren't on location interviewing, uh, you know, Lech Wałęsa in, in, uh, in Warsaw uh, during the solidarity days or where, wherever the story happened to be. Um, I, you know, there were, were a lot of virtual interviews then. Uh, but the, the beauty of Zoom as opposed to some of those, as you can see the person at the same time. And that kind of eye-to-eye, face-to-face contact, um, I mean, nothing replaces in person, but this is pretty close. Mm -hmm. and, and so you, you, know, you watch how a person reacts to your questions and, 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 uh, and that can give you a feel, a vibe for what that interview is gonna be like and how far you can move uh, towards trying to get to the, the answers you want. Um, so, listen, the last couple of years have been painful for an awful lot of people, as we know, uh, but they've also offered us all opportunities with new technology, especially in our field of, you know, communications um, that are kind of mind boggling in a way. Mm. Uh, and some of them will stay with us and, and we'll continue to incorporate them. But at the, at the end of the day, nothing replaces the person to person, face to face in the same room uh, as your, uh, as your subject. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and hopefully, uh, you know, nothing will, I, you know, I've been, I, I continue to be busy on the speech circuit, but a lot of it's ritual. Um, and that disconnection, not, not just seeing the audience, but feeling the audience and hearing how they're reacting to you know what you're saying i mean i spoke to a thousand people the other day in uh, in alberta um like you don't see them <laughs> because they're all in their homes um you see the occasional one when they're asking questions but you don't see them as a group and during your speech you don't hear them and you need that kind of vibe you need to to play off it properly and to have a good uh, you know have a good speech and a good conversation yeah, I've, uh, I've often struggled with that, too, because I do some hockey writing on the side for the LA Kings, and obviously me living in Sudbury, um, you can't really do in-person interviews with former you know, personnel and current players in the team. So oftentimes sure. they were just done by telephone, and I found that sometimes I kind of got off the hook a bit because you didn't have to look them in the eye, and you, know, you couldn't pick up on, is this question I'm asking you, is this going to push a button? Like, should I not go down this road? So I find that, uh, but in the Zoom world, I think now, um, you know, being able to do podcasts like this and being able to see your guests, I think, takes it to a whole new level because certainly sure. 
you know, it's uh, it's one thing to ask somebody a question, but it's a whole different, you know, um, when you have to look them in the eye to ask it. Right. So. Right. Right. But, uh, but, you know, the event that Steve mentioned, um, that was obviously one of the last in-person events that I went to as part of my job. Um, and, you know, one of the things that Steve and I wanted to ask you, because the reason why we started this podcast was to try to, you know, elevate the applied research work that happens at colleges across Canada, chiefly, you know, the work that we do here at Cambrian and Sudbury. Um, but it's not, you know, we're still in a world where, you know, when Steve and I were going through high school, there was still a stigma around going to college, that it was seen as like the lesser path, that it was kind of university or bust or you weren't going to get a good job. But I think us having now worked in the college system, like that couldn't be further from the truth. There's so many, you know, well-paying jobs and meaningful jobs that, that students get from college education. And, you know, um, but there's still this kind of, uh, you know, misconceptions around college education. I'm just wondering through the course of, you know, I mean, maybe even your own, you know, educational experience, but in the course of your reporting, uh, do you have a take on the role, you know, that colleges and other institutions in Canada play, especially with that hands-on component and helping to fill, you know, the skills gaps that we currently have? Right. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I can comment on that, but I commented on it from a position of of a lack of experience um having not finished high school i you know i never went to college or university um however you know because of my career i've been in in a lot of universities mm -hmm. I've been, and colleges and i have you know honorary degrees from both um so many so that i, I keep trying to make a trade if i can trade a dozen of these can i get a real one you know <laughs> Um, nobody snaps up that, uh, that offer at the moment. Listen, I, you know, I think things have changed and you indicated that too, in terms of the perception of, um, the different roles universities and colleges play, uh, but they play together the same role really in, uh, uh, giving the education and the qualifications for uh, young people, uh, to move forward into, uh, you know, uh, real roles in in society outside of their kind of schooling um and i think we've seen this you know i was chancellor of the university for eight years at uh, mount allison in new brunswick and you know so i i saw firsthand the the quality of the graduates every year because you know you have to as chancellor you're there at convocation um but during that time as well there were there were uh, students who were graduating from university who would tell me okay i'm done here but now i'm going to a college mm -hmm. because i want to get specific in one particular area and um, they can do what universities can't do uh, and i think that's changed you know 20 years ago you wouldn't see that it was kind of like beneath mm -hmm. the discussion uh, now it's very much a part of the discussion and for good reason because uh, employers are looking for the kind, well, they're looking for graduates from both uh, institutions, but truly they're looking for graduates from both institutions. And the marketplace for college graduates um, is just as vigorous and just mm -hmm. as enticing to them as um, uh, university graduates. Yeah, I remember, yeah, and then, oh, go sorry, ahead, go ahead, Steve. I was just gonna agree. <laughs> Obviously, it's changed a lot, um, but I think it's really that hands-on piece that where colleges sort of, and then that sort of work-integrated learning, you know, learning on the job. You know, if a, if a student can come to a job and he, and he or she is less, you know, 50% less green than they would have been, you know, straight out of school, I think that's a, 
that's a win for the employer and for the college that, that sure. produced that grad, right? Absolutely. Yeah, and I think um, we're going to talk about uh, your book uh, that Mike and I have uh, have read uh, off the record. It, you know, it, it's sort of weird when, when reading it, you know, few people when they write a memoir have so many significant, you know, historical events they could talk about when it comes to your own life and career. But off the record sort of reads as a history book, like both Mike and I have history backgrounds. Mike has a PhD in Canadian history and I have a master's in Canadian history. Uh, you were there for the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, the shooting at Parliament was particularly stirring. That that story, uh, obviously, uh, big hip fan, Gord Downey's final days. Did the did this process of writing the book allow you to take a step back and truly appreciate all these significant moments? Because it's 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 not a trivial life you've lived, uh, Peter. <laughs> no, I, I mean it still falls under that opening phrase I had about how lucky I've been. I mean, I you know. I, as a journalist, you get to be at the front lines of the writing of, of history that you guys are experts in. And, uh, you know, when I consider the places I've been around the world and, and around the country, um, you know, there's nothing like actually being there in the moment, especially, uh, you know, in something, you know, like the Berlin Wall, as you mentioned. I mean, the, the world changed in that moment, that weekend. And, and I was there, I was lucky enough to be there, you know, this baggage handler from Churchill, as I, as I often say, uh, you know, sitting in the White House across from Barack Obama, being in, you know, South Africa, Nelson Mandela's funeral, uh, being on the, you know, Great Wall of China when Mao was still alive in 76. Uh, you know, all these things, and all the political conventions and election nights and all of that, um, you know, when I sat down and started to write this book, I mean, they were, Simon Schuster wanted a memoir. I said, I don't, want, I don't want to write a memoir. It's kind of presumptuous of me to, you know, write the big memoir. I mean, who cares about, uh, <laughs> about my life? But, um, but I said, what I will do is I'll tell, you know, I'll tell stories, the kind of stories that I tell with friends at dinner or in a pub or what have you, um, which is kind of the story behind the story. And that's all what a lot of off the record is like things that kind of happened in, you know, like Obama in the White House, you know, stuff that wasn't on the air the night I did the interview with him. Uh, but in my mind, it was, you know, the best stuff that, <laughs> that happened there. Um, but, you know, there are 60 or 70 anecdotes in the book um, that are kind of like that, that the story behind the story that'll give you some sense of the moment in time uh, often that's in, in the history books and yet you never looked at it this way um, and so, so that was the fun part of it and one as I started writing it by the time I was sort of halfway through it I was saying to myself exactly what you're what you said Steve which is man you know like I've been a lot of I've seen a lot of stuff and uh and, and uh, you know how lucky I was to have seen it and met the people that I met. You know whether it was Gord Downey or Margaret Thatcher or whoever the, it was, they were all experiences that were, you know, helped shape me into the kind of person and journalist that I am. And there's so many, yeah, like you said, there's so many good stories in the book. Like as you're going through the process, you obviously can't include like everything that's happened to you in your life and your career. Were there some stories that you weren't able to include just because you ran out of, ran out of space or maybe it was a decision to not include it? Is there anything, you know, that that's missing from this, uh, 
from off the record that uh, that you could share? You mean for volume two? Yeah, yeah, sneak, <laughs> sneak peek for the second volume. No, I mean, I, I, you know, there were a few stories that I that I dropped for space because we were, were trying to hit a, a particular uh, count in terms of page numbers in the book. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, the, these were the best of the best. Now, mm -hmm. since I finished writing it, I thought, oh, you know, I should have told that story, which I, because I had nothing written down as such. You know, I, I had memories. Mm -hmm. and uh, and so i sat down and did most of that book in in my backyard uh during the summer of um uh 2020 and i i would go out you know 5 30 in the morning sit down i you know i'd start writing and i'd write one story and it would in my mind it would click into another story and mm -hmm. i'd write it so we had this sort of collage of stories and then it was a, a matter of sitting down with the editor at Simon and Schuster and coming up with, you know, an order for the book. Mm -hmm. And they wanted, you know, through, aside from all the anecdotes, they wanted three substantial chapters. They wanted something that would explain kind of like who I am and where I came from. Uh, they wanted some, my thoughts on journalism and, and, uh, and then they wanted a kind of a concluding chapter on, uh, on my feelings about Canada. Um, and so those, those took a, a little more time and energy to write than the, uh, than the anecdotes, because the, the anecdotal stories are, you know, what are there? There's like 70 chapters in the book. And uh, most of the stories are, you know, two or three pages long, which is probably being part of the reason, I must say, as to the success of the book. I mean, it was an instant number one bestseller. It's been on the best-selling list for four months now. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the reaction I've had from readers who've written to me on my podcast to talk about the book, all say it's that, that kind of short story thing. They'll go to bed at night and figure I'll, I'll read one and they end up reading three or four because yeah. they're kind of easy to read. Um, and the book doesn't take long to read, let's face it. You can read that book uh, certainly in a weekend if not in uh, not in a day because of that nature you don't get bogged down yeah. in, in anything you just move on and you can also you can actually pick it up anywhere right you can open yeah. the book anywhere and and read the story it doesn't matter what's come before or, or comes after it for that matter yeah it's, yeah and uh, I, I like that it could be almost a reference book because you can always say well i wonder what peter mansbridge thought about that event in history did he have anything to say about that and then you can right. go back to it because it's it's roughly chronological right and i do i do i must say that i do appreciate the postscript at the end of most of the stories too because you're then reflecting on that memory uh yeah. you know each time and that gives even more uh sort of nuance and context to each of them well, sure and P peter i just wanted to jump in there for a second because again i agree like there's nothing uh Sometimes I think when you're reading a book that has like very long chapters, it's almost uh, it's frustrating and daunting to try to get to that next break point. But having those those chapters that you can kind of get through, you know, quite easily, I think kind of empowers you to keep going. But but one of the things I did want to ask you, not just to talk about ease of readability was, you know, Steve and I had both both after we finished reading the books had talked about how the chapter on Canada, I think, was probably the most uh, the one that resonated the most with me, certainly I enjoyed all the stories, but I really felt that what you wrote about Canada in, in that concluding chapter 
um, I think is important that a lot of Canadians, like all Canadians should be reading that. Um, have you had a, have you heard from, you know, from other people that that's a chapter that's kind of stuck out to them the way that it has uh, with Stephen myself? Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. And, and from a range of people, you know, um, former cabinet ministers, prime ministers, um, you know, uh, sports figures, yeah. uh, and, you know, just like, you know, kind of ordinary people who, who have written, um, either written their own uh, stories or uh, love our voracious readers. And they felt that it really, the chapter on Canada really uh, touched them in a way that, you know, in, in part, many of them hadn't thought of before. Uh, so I, you know, it's important. It's my, you know, it's my experience. It's a, it's how I feel about the country, which, you know, I love, but I, I, I don't get carried away with loving it so much that I don't understand that there are issues that we mm -hmm. haven't dealt with historically. And until we do, uh, we're not going to be the country we want to be. Yeah, I think it was a, you know, when you're talking about those three, you, I think you re reference it as a trilogy, the three things that sort of really put into focus what a Canadian is, God, uh, really <laughs> holding back uh, like some tears, if I'm being honest, Peter, because like it, yeah. it's at once, you know, there's a bit of sorrow, but also pride you feel when, when it gets, you know, a fine point about what it is to be a Canadian, which I think you say, you know, Canadians care. And I think mm -hmm. that is that is such a, uh, a moving sort of realization you came up with. Great. Oh, I'm glad you, uh, I'm glad it uh, touched you as well. Um, just, uh, I, I must say, growing up and indeed in adulthood, uh, Peter Mansbridge's voice is often in the background of my family home and then <laughs> now with my, my adult family. Um, have you ever, I think Canadians sort of define you uh, through your work with the CBC and I should say the on-camera work you've done with the CBC. Um, but if you were able to define your own legacy, what would you want to include uh, in your time at the CBC and afterwards? Well, you know, I, I, I just want to be known as a, a, a guy who was a, um, who loved his job, uh, who was a good journalist, not a great journalist, but a good journalist, um, and loved telling stories, uh, primarily about our country, but not exclusively about our country. Uh, and, you know, I had the uh, had the opportunity to do that through uh, on a number of platforms. I mean, I've been lucky. I've been in the business for, well, 55 years, 50 of them with the CBC. And with the CBC, it was, you know, radio first, then television. Um, since then, I've, you know, moved into documentary work uh, that I do on my own but sell back to the cbc i've got a big doc coming up in uh, april on the arctic i was up you know arctic is one of my favorite places as you know from reading the book mm -hmm. and i was back up there um for a couple of weeks going through the northwest passage again uh and there's a documentary on arctic sovereignty and uh, it, it's partly about climate change as well uh so i do that I do a daily podcast, which is, you mentioned earlier, and it's, you know, one of the top rated uh, Canadian political podcasts. And uh, I, I love doing that. It started as a, as a hobby. I mean, I do it right here where, where we are. There's a little microphone I have for it. 
but um, so I'm in my little, you know, office in Stratford, Ontario, uh, in, in the den of my home. And, uh, you know, I, podcasting has been great fun. It's liberating for me. I mean, I spent all that time doing newscasts and believing um, uh, the role of a newscast to present as much information as possible, allow the, the viewer, the listener to make up their own minds about a subject. Uh, the podcast is a little more liberating in the sense that it goes as long as I want. And I can basically say whatever I want. <laughs> if I have an opinion, I, I can share it, uh, which is something I didn't do before. I sit on a few boards, uh, uh, which is fun. I teach a little bit at, uh, give the odd lecture at the Monk School, the University of Toronto. Uh, so I, I'm actually doing more than I, <laughs> I did when I was anchoring the national, yeah. but uh, but uh, I set my own pace and that's the, uh, that's the beauty of it. You know, the podcast that Steve and I do is, is weekly. So like, how do you, like, how do you <laughs> do the daily? Cause I mean, you know, him and I are always just, I think we thought it'd be a weekly podcast and it is, but like, we find ourselves having to think like, we need another episode because we're running out of content for, you know, the month of February. So like, who else right. can we get? Like, how do you, how do you keep it going day after day? Um, you know, I, I'm up early every morning. I'm usually up by 5, 5.30. Uh, I do the podcast at around 7 or 7.30 in the morning. And as you know, you can go, go as long as you want mm -hmm. with a podcast. Now, I'm limited somewhat because SiriusXM uh, bought the distribution rights for a satellite radio service. And it's on every day at noon uh, on them. So I, I can't be more than, um, you know, more than an hour. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, you know, I'm usually in the sort of 35 to 40 minute range and for them, that's perfect because they can fit in commercials and what have you. Mm -hmm. Um, but the, uh, content, how you fill it, I mean, I hate to say it, but the pandemic's been good for podcasts. <laughs> There's always no something to talk about as a result no of so I try to do that. I try to do a, kind of a pandemic update every Monday. So that kind of takes care of that show. Um, uh, Wednesdays, uh, I do something called Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth with my friend Bruce Anderson in Ottawa, where we kind of, we, we, we try to dismantle certain arguments that are played out politically uh, in terms of what's smoke and mirrors and what's, what's the truth. And then Friday, which is the most popular podcast that I do, is called Good Talk with Chantelle Hébert mm -hmm. um, from Northern Ontario, and uh, and um, and Bruce again from uh, from Ottawa. So today, you know, it's been a uh, this particular week has been a crazy week in uh, in Ottawa mm -hmm. uh, between Aaron O'Toole's departure and the and the trucker thing, and uh, so <laughs> we had no trouble at all filling an, an hour uh, yeah. ranting and raving about that one. Um, and Thursday, I try to make a, um, a kind of your turn edition. I get a lot of mail, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of it nice, some of it not so nice. <laughs> uh, but it, 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 the mix makes for a nice show. And it's very popular out there with, uh, with listeners. I mean, I, I've, been, I've had the arrangement with Sirius for, uh, well, just a year, February of last year. And there have been over two and a half million downloads. And uh, I don't really know what that means. It sounds, it sounds good. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. it's good. Uh, and, they, uh, and I know Sirius likes it a lot because they, uh, they distribute the podcast 
and therefore they you know they get a cut they get their cut mm-hmm. um so they're uh, they're happy and um so i mean that's that's kind of mm-hmm. how i do it you know the one other day of the week is tuesday and i keep it open for whatever i might want to do mm-hmm. this past week i, I did a uh, a show on electric vehicles which there's a lot of a lot of interest in that story even you know it, most people if they don't have an electric vehicle which is the majority but if they don't have one are convinced they're going to have one in their lifetime so they're interested in the story about battery life and charging stations and all that kind of stuff um so they, i mean there's always topics out there and that's the beauty as you know of podcasts is you could whatever topic you want you know if you're if you're interested in it the odds are there are going to be some other people interested in Mm -hmm. it as well and uh, away you go that's for sure and i think it's so interesting you mentioned i I actually listened to the ev episode uh, where you had charlotte yates on um who was a wealth of information and a really uh, good resource to bring on right it's always important to bring people that are much smarter than you on a particular topic onto the podcast to elucidate. Yeah, that's, that's hard to do though, Steve, right? That's yeah, right, hard yeah, to you're right. smarter. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, it's very difficult, uh, less difficult <laughs> yeah. for some of us like Mike and I, but um, uh, Mike and I actually are running a research center that focuses on uh, EV powertrain development at the college here in, 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 uh, in Sudbury. And um, one of the things we think about when we think higher level, because we get right down into the technical of, of, of some of those uh, those new drivetrains and battery chemistries that are coming out all the time. But is this, you, like, just in your view and, and your talks you had with, with Charlotte, um, is this the sort of shot in the arm the Canadian auto sector has been waiting for to, to regain? And, you know, if we're already talking about it on podcasts, have we already missed the boat as Canada on this trend? Or, or do you think there's lots of more opportunity we'll take advantage of? Yeah, I think there's lots of opportunity, but you got to be ready for it. I mean, as uh, Charlotte Yates, she's the president of Guelph University, right? Mm -hmm. Um, As she uh, pointed out, I mean, for Canada, there's so much at stake, not just in the main automotive industry, you know, in the big plants that exist in, in our country, but perhaps more so in the auto parts industry which, you know, in the case of Ontario and Quebec is a dominant part of the economy. And, you know, the parts business is going to change dramatically over these next 10 to 20 years as EVs become more and more the the force. Uh, I can't remember what the figure is, but, you know, in, you know, in, in traditional gas powered vehicles, um, the, uh, the number of parts in a, in a vehicle is, you know, there are hundreds. In an electric vehicle, as you know, there are nowhere near that many. Mm-hmm. And so the parts industry is going to be impacted to a great deal, uh, to, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars and thousands of jobs. Uh, so that's where we've really got to be ready. I mean, the, uh, the, uh, the major plants are doing what they do. I mean, you saw the GM announcement last week or two weeks ago you know, uh, putting $7 billion into retooling their plants um, for, for EVs. And uh, man, uh, you know, that's a lot of money. And it's a huge story that's kind of bubbling along in the background for a lot of people. Um, but it's going to be very much up front uh, as the years uh, move ahead. 
Peter, and I know that you've been so generous with your time and we've got, I've got a couple of quick ones for you here just to kind of switch gears back. Cause I know that Steve was, was dying to talk to you about EVs. And so I don't, I don't want to, <laughs> to cut him off from, from continuing that, but, uh, but I did want to kind of tie it back uh, as with a nice little bow with, uh, with the term, like the theme of the unlikely innovators. And so obviously throughout your career and currently with the podcast, you get to talk to, you know, a number of innovative Canadians from, from scientists to astronauts um, when you think of Canadian innovation, is there a particular person, you know, that sticks out to you? Boy, um, well, you know, like we have so many uh, innovators in different uh, fields and have, have done historically, you know, like when you look at the development of, you know, vaccines and uh, insulin and, and all that on the, on the, on the health front. Um, that continues to this day with the great research that's done at you know uh, various uh, places across the country. We have uh, innovators in uh, in business. You know, I was just uh, I'm dealing with a uh, with Jimmy Patterson in British Columbia to do a, a thing later this year with him. Guy's 93, right? He's he's still as active as the any one of the three of us, and um, and he took. He literally went from basically a small town auto dealership to, you know, a multi-billionaire with uh, all kinds of different things. His innovation on business, not necessarily some new idea or new, some new product, but the way to do business, uh, you know, has been uh, terrific. You know, Chris Hatfield, who's a, you know, a friend of mine, and I'm sure you guys have talked to him at different, uh, different points. I mean, there's a guy who's a, an innovator with a, like a simple idea. Like when I go up in the space station, I'm going to take pictures and I'm going to make a book out of it. And I'm going to yeah. sell it and become one of the best selling books in the world. Right. <laughs> um, that guy's an innovator on so many different levels. And what, he just came out this year with, a, you know, a, a, a fiction, a novel, mm -hmm. uh, a book on something about space and you think well why was that never done before i mean sure jules verne did it but uh, what about now with people who actually know what goes on there well away chris went and did it um so he's a you know he's a great innovator i mean it's you know part of our traditions our our our, our entertainment industry you know, in terms of music, you talked about Gord Downey, and there was an innovator of a particular mm -hmm. style that was extremely popular with Canadians, and and for the most part, just Canadians. Mm -hmm. uh, but he turned that into, you know, a status for himself and his and his and his band um, that sets them apart from everybody else. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, the sports scene better than I do, uh, Mike, and, but we've got, you know, we, we've got innovators there. Um, not only those who, who played the game, but those who were behind the game. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've, uh, you know, I think there's lots of examples of great Canadian innovator stories. Um, so many of which started with, you know, an idea and a belief that they could turn that idea into something um, that worked out to their benefit, but to the country's benefit as well. Mm. And, uh, you know, and I, you know, that kind of motivation for people will still exist, uh, you know, as, and I'll 
only get better as we move on. And you'd mentioned, uh, you mentioned the sports scene. I've got to ask you this one because it, uh, you know, it, it jumped out to me as a, you know, I already mentioned my hockey, uh, you know, predilection. So I want to kind of close out with this, but you know, in your, in your book, so I'll tie it back to the book, you know, you said growing up in Ottawa in the fifties, there was no home team. So you had to pick, you know, either red or blue and uh, you picked blue, which I'm, I'm happy about because I'm a Leafs fan. Uh, but, you know, when we're talking today, it's been a couple of days since the Leafs celebrated uh, a dubious milestone, which is that it's been 20,000 days since they last won the Stanley Cup. So the question I wanted to ask you and whether or not you're, you're still following the Leafs to this day is, doesn't matter. But do you think we'll see a championship in Toronto, in the NHL, in the, in the next little bit? Or are we going to be celebrating another dubious milestone in, uh, in another uh, 10, 15 years? You know, I, I'm a believer, right? I, I believe. Um, and I believe in the, the Leafs. I especially believe in Kyle Dubas and Sheldon O'Keefe, the GM and the coach right now. Uh, I think they've made some terrific moves. I mean, I think it's unfortunate what's happened to the Leafs in the playoffs in the last few years. But they have an incredibly exciting team uh, with a couple of the best players in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the play for uh, uh, Toronto. Um, I'm still a Leafs fan, diehard. I'm also a kind of a Winnipeg Jets fan because I spent a lot of time when I lived in the West and I was there when they first came back with Bobby mm-hmm. Hull in, in the early 1970s. Covered that story. I actually traveled with the team for a while uh, doing a documentary on their first year. But um, I'm still a Leafs fan. I still believe, I want to believe that they will win a cup in my lifetime. So they, they better get going. Um, you know, I'm a, I was never able to get to games when I was doing the national, but I uh, signed up long ago to be a, a season ticket holder. And it came through at the same time as I retired. So I'm a season ticket holder for the Leafs. And I, you know, I, I love going to the games. Um, it's been hard these last you know couple of years because of the pandemic. Uh, but hopefully uh, by the time they raise the cup later this year, we'll all be back there in the <laughs> in the arena. I, listen, I think there's a chance. I think they're as good a team as anybody right now. They're, do they have weaknesses? Sure, they do. And anything can happen in in the game, and anything can happen in the playoffs. Yeah, as we've witnessed over time. I mean, look how a team went from the Stanley Cup Finals last year to the most pathetic <laughs> last place. Yeah finish they seem to be going in this year not that i would wish ill on the Habs at all <laughs> well, of course not no <laughs> <laughs> well I, I i hope that prediction holds true i again i uh you know i like to believe every year i feel like i'm saying this is the year and then it's next year is the year and on and on but you know that's i think that's the beauty of the playoffs that anything can happen as long as you get in um you never know and i think you know the team is built well um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. So let's, uh, let's hope that maybe we can reconnect, uh, you know, celebrating a Leafs championship sometime in June. I hope so. <laughs> Peter Mansbridge, uh, thank you so much for spending, you know, this half hour with us. Um, the book again is off the record and you're so generous with your time and, and, and really a pleasure. You, you sort of made a dream come true for Mike and I, so, uh, it was really uh, great to talk to you and uh, and thanks again for for joining us today on the unlikely innovators well thank you steve and thank you mike it was a treat to chat with uh, both of you and 
look for look forward to the next time I'm out there near the big nickel. It'll be uh, it'll be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we'll shine we'll shine it up for you. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Steve, I'm so happy that I get to say once again that that was a great chat with Peter Mansbridge. Um, yeah, and maybe just a little bit of backstory here because I think it is, you know, it's, I think it's important for the listeners to kind of figure out how some of these guests kind of come to be. And I think, like, I, I think I explained this a little bit in the opening question that we had with Peter was that, you know, I had read his book off the record over the holidays. And, you know, I'm obviously familiar with his career at, at CBC, having, you know, seen and, and heard him over the years. But one thing that jumped out at me that I maybe wasn't aware of, like, as I was growing up was that, you know, he was uh, a baggage handler at the, at the Churchill airport. And then, you know, ended up becoming the former, uh, or ended up becoming the chief correspondent for the CBC, you know, kind of through happenstance of being able to kind of make this announcement at the, at the, at the airport and kind of getting discovered by somebody. And so Mm -hmm. I thought, you know what, nothing is more unlikely than that. Um, You know, we have a podcast called the unlikely innovators, like it would be really cool if Peter Mansbridge came on the podcast and kind of, you know, talked about his storied career. So I just on a whim sent him an email um, and he got back to me again. I think you and I both wanted to ask the question, like, why are you here? But I mean, I think, you know, I don't think we would have needed to ask that because again, I think he's just somebody who appreciates the craft telling stories. Uh, So again, we were so thrilled that he spent some time with us today, you know, to kind of walk through some of the stories in his book uh, and maybe explain some of the stories in his life. Yeah. And Mike, I, uh, I would love if you told the story. So sometimes we send a collection of questions we want to ask our guests uh, just to make sure they're comfortable with the subject matter. Uh, tell, tell us what Peter said when, when you sent that off to him. Yeah. So again, it's funny now, like thinking back to that email, right. Where I'm emailing Peter Mansbridge and saying, uh, and you know, and I'll send you some questions in advance, you know, he, and he kindly replied back that, that he didn't need questions, you know, and it's like, of course he doesn't. Of course he's, he doesn't. He's Peter he's Mansbridge. Peter Mansbridge. Yeah, so, yeah. but again, I just think of like, again, such a, such a seasoned vet because, you know, even if I'm on a podcast, like I would like questions in advance to kind of know, but I mean, we went through everything with him from, you know, the Maple Leafs to electric vehicles to mm. moments in his life and his career. And of course, like you would have thought that, uh, you know, he had seen any of any of the questions in advance, but again, I think he's just such a, you know, gifted storyteller and orator that, you know, he, yeah. he took them all in stride and yeah, it was a great chat. Yeah. And I think um, one thing I noticed is just, he still has a great deal of humility, right? He honestly said, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I wrote this book and I'm not, I wasn't really sure at the time if, you know, anyone would be yeah, why would anybody in my life. About my life. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, uh, I think there's quite a lot of people, uh, especially Canadians, who would want to read about your life. So yeah. Um, uh, rest assured, Peter, there are tons of people out there wanting to know more about your life. So again, thank you for coming on the pod with us today. Yeah. And I mean, I think he's also reinvigorated my belief in the Toronto Maple Leafs, which is difficult to do. Uh, But if anybody could do it, it's Peter Mansbridge. So again, hoping that that prediction holds true. Uh, And if nothing else, just uh, such a thrill to have him on and get to chat with him today. So, yeah. And uh, I don't know how we'll top this one, but uh, we'll, we'll strive to do so. We will find a way. So again, thanks for joining us this week. Uh, It's been a real treat and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining.